Okay, am I on? Fantastic. Give me a moment. Okay, good morning. As uh, Anna said, my name's Rob. I'm part of the leadership team here at Christchurch, so I'd just like to extend my welcome to you all as well. Um, if you didn't know, we're looking through the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians this year. Um, if, you, uh, if you have a Bible, it'd be great if you can start finding 2 Corinthians 5. That's what I'll be looking at today. Um, and for those who haven't been here with us lately, I'll just do a quick recap. Um, this second book of Corinthians that Paul writes, um, it's his response to some challenge in the church of Corinth. They've, uh, uh, he's faced some opposition from them, and, uh, and this is his opportunity to sort, of, uh, to, to sort of put things straight, to defend his ministry, and, as well as to continue teaching them and uh, some other things as well. Sorry. Just sort this out. There we go. Um, Last week, Sai looked at uh, chapter four, didn't he? And um, if you haven't listened to that, I'd recommend you go back and listen to it, as, as well as all the other talks. And um, we saw there that uh, Paul was facing a number of hardships, afflictions, and Sai really challenged us to not get distracted by uh, worldly uh, things, not to get distracted by difficulties even, but to be consumed with God. That was Sai's message. And I'd just like to go back to chapter 4 before I read today's one, which uh, there's a bit right at the end of chapter, chapter 4 where Paul says he does not lose heart. He says, our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all, comp- all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For these things that are seen are transient, but the things that are, that are unseen are eternal. And the reason I want to go back to that is because chapter 5 today very much continues that theme of the things that we see and the things that we don't see. The eternal unseen things is what Paul wants to expand on because for him, he says that's what can, gets him through these afflictions, these unseen eternal things. They give him a hope for a glorious future, and that's how he gets through. And they're also his motivation They motivate him to pursue God, to support the church, to share the gospel. It's the reason he did what he did, these unseen eternal things. And so I think it would be good just to remind ourselves of that chapter. So I'm going to read chapter 5 now. If you've got it in your Bible, um, great. If not, it will be behind me as well. So 2 Corinthians 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we were still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we were always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. For what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance 
and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he who died for all, um, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's quite a passage, isn't it? There's a lot in there. Um, forgive me if I don't get into everything in great detail. I'll do my best. And I'm just going to pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we have the privilege it is to study this together, to consider it. And I do pray, God, that you would speak through me this morning, that you would open up this passage to us, and that we would hear your voice this morning and would be challenged and encouraged by you. Amen. So my first question is, what motivates you? What gets you up in the morning? What gets you through the day or gets you through the week? Uh, young people, getting your homework done, what motivates you? Is it the thought of attaining well or is it nagging parents? Don't have to answer that. What about the rest of us? Getting through the day, is it for some getting to the weekend? You can work hard through the week because you know the weekend's coming. Does that motivate you? Or perhaps payday, does that motivate you to work hard? I know for some, getting to payday means that you can then go out and spend what you've earned. For others, payday is, means actually you've survived another month and you've paid the bills, and that's what motivates you. What about holidays? I'm a teacher. I look forward to my holidays. I won't lie. What about the rest of you? Do, you? do you work hard, get through the weeks, get through the months because you know a holiday's coming? What about a major life event? Working hard to prepare for that baby that's coming or that wedding day. What about retirement? You know, looking towards the end of your career helps you get through your career. I wonder what motivates you to get through things. For Paul, he's looking beyond even any of these things I've mentioned. He's looking to the day of resurrection. He's looking to the day that Christ returns and that he gets a resurrection body. So let's look at this. In the first section, Paul explains what happens to our bodies. He uses two metaphors. One is about buildings and one's about clothes. But both show that our bodies will be resurrected. And it's important that we read this alongside 1 Corinthians 15 that uh, Sai spoke on just before the summer which is all about our resurrection bodies. Here, Paul wants to make it clear that we do have two bodies. One that we have now, our earthly bodies that was born from our mothers, and one that will be given, which is directly from God, an eternal, eternal in the heavens, not made with hands, which is another way of saying that it was made by God. Now, of course, we believe that our bodies now were made by God, don't we? You know, David in Psalm 139 said that we were knitted together in our mother's wombs. But Paul's point here is that these new resurrection bodies will be different, given directly from God in an instant, fully formed. 
they will be similar to us now, but also very different. So what does he say about buildings? Paul first compares our bodies to tents. He calls it our earthly home. And if anyone knew about tents, it was Paul, because that was his job. He was a tent maker. Now, I think camping is one of those things that can really divide people, can't it? Some people absolutely, some people love it. Some people really can't stand it. Who, who absolutely loves camping? I'm just curious. Oh, a lot. Interesting, lots of young people. Yeah, that's because you don't have to pack. <laughs> okay, I won't ask who dislikes it. You see, with camping, I think also about camping, that's why glamping is so popular, isn't it? Because you can technically be in a camp, in a tent, but it doesn't actually feel like you're in a tent. The idea of a tent reminds us that actually our bodies are temporary, they're transient, they don't last. I think camping can be fun, but there's nothing that's quite as good as getting home from camping, is there? Because you know that something is better at home, your bed. And that's what Paul's saying about our bodies as tents is that we groan and long for that better one. You see, it says in uh, chapter 4, it says our outer body is wasting away. And we know that, don't we? Our bodies are aging. Um, they're imperfect. We suffer pain. We suffer discomfort. And some of us, we realize that actually we can't do what we used to be able to do. But Paul makes it clear that we do have a much, much better body to come, our resurrection body. Paul calls it our heavenly dwelling or a building from God. And unlike these earthly bodies, these earthly tents, they'll be perfect, imperishable, glorious, raised in power. And they won't get old, they won't get ill, they won't suffer, there won't be pain, and they will be eternal. Amen? I read from one book I wrote, I read, the writer said, it's like moving from a tent to a palace. That sounds good, doesn't it? He also compares it to clothes, the idea of putting on a new body. See, we're both physical and spiritual. We have a physical body, but we also have a spirit or a soul. And when our physical body dies, if you're a follower of Christ, your spirit will continue to live and go to be with Christ. And that's what Paul's talking about, with this idea of being home and away. It's nothing to do with football, but he's saying that right now, so for example, me, right now my spirit is at home in my body, and therefore, it's away from the presence of God. But when I die, my spirit will be away from my body and with God. But what about this being found naked or unclothed? What does he mean? At first glance, it does sound a bit negative, doesn't it? Perhaps shameful or embarrassing. Someone once took my trousers when I was at secondary school after a PE lesson. And I promise you, that's embarrassing to lose your clothes. Sorry for another day, perhaps. But what Paul's describing here isn't embarrassing at all. He's simply referring to the time between our two physical bodies, when our spirit is with God without any body at all, hence being naked. Paul's not disappointed by this thought, though. He says he would rather be at home with the Lord. In Philippians 1, he says, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Talking about that better place. So he does desire to be with Christ, of course, but this passage, he wants to be further clothed. He's really emphasizing his hope is fixed on receiving that resurrection body and would rather have that straight away than in between. An important question, of course, to ask is when? When will we receive these new bodies? And the Bible is clear that we receive them when Christ returns. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says, For as in Adam all die... 
so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, that means he has his body, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And in 1 John 3, John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. That's the unseen. But we know that when he, Christ, appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Now, for believers who have already died, their spirit is with God. And we call that the intermediate state without a body. Throughout the Bible, this is often referred to as sleep because we're reminded again that even death is only temporary. Uh, Lazarus, the story of Lazarus is, is an example of someone who died and yet was brought back to life by Jesus. It says he'd been dead for days and he was placed in a tomb. And yet when Jesus went to him, he told his disciples, Lazarus is just asleep. So when Christ returns, believers who have already passed away will receive their resurrection bodies. Their spirits will be reunited with those new bodies, and which will be then for all eternity. For believers who are still alive when Christ returns, they'll receive their resurrection bodies immediately. They'll bypass that intermediate state and go straight from their earthly body to their heavenly body. And this helps us make sense of Paul's longing to not be found naked or unclothed, but to be further clothed with a resurrection body. Paul summarized this really well in his, his letter to um, the church in Thessalonica. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians 15 again, he said, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Something to look forward to. It says that, Paul says that God has prepared this for us. And it also says that God has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. Verse 5. See, the Holy Spirit is a reminder that Jesus has gone ahead of us. He's the first and only one to have his resurrection body. And after Jesus ascended into heaven with that new resurrection body, he poured out the Holy Spirit on all believers. And that's the link. The Holy Spirit reminds us that Christ has been resurrected, and so will we when he returns. Also, I think the, the word guarantee also carries with it the idea of a down payment or a deposit as part of a binding contract. Think about when you're buying a house or a really large item. That deposit is quite a substantial amount in itself, but it's actually a promise that you will fulfill it and pay the rest later. And that's what it means to have the Holy Spirit as a guarantee in us too. God will fulfill what he's fully later what he's given to us already. And that's how Paul can say he can be of good courage. He is filled with the Holy Spirit and he's fixed his eyes on this future resurrection. It's also why Paul can say that he walks by faith and not by sight, a really well-known verse. It's not about believing the unbelievable, but trusting in God's promise. Scripture points towards that day, and the Holy Spirit is a guarantee in us of it too. So let's be anticipating that day when Christ returns. So Paul's motivated by the, the thought of the day that Christ returns. He's motivated by his future resurrection. When Jesus comes down 
and makes all things new. But it's also a day of judgment when Christ returns. The Bible is very clear that Christ will judge when he returns to the earth. Paul writes in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, this judgment seat was quite familiar to the Corinthians. I think I've got a picture. There was a a judgment seat in Corinthians. This is the picture of the remains um, that they found. The judgment seat was a a raised stone platform in all Roman cities where the governor conducted uh, legal business and would try cases. It was also a place where athletes were were brought to be rewarded or or given their crowns for, for winning their event. In fact, Paul was actually dragged before this very judgment seat himself. In, uh, you can read about it in Acts 18. It was on his first visit to Corinth, and uh, the Jewish people dragged him to Gallio, the proconsul at the time. But thankfully, Gallio wasn't interested in what they were accusing him of and just threw the case out. Pilate was on a judgment seat when Jesus was brought to him. And Caesar, when Paul is taken to him later, was also on a judgment seat. So it was quite common for them in those days. It wasn't an unfamiliar term. Now, the Bible is clear that that Jesus will judge people when he returns. He will separate those who believe from those who don't. But this judgment that Paul's talking about isn't like that. This is for believers only. And as believers, this judgment should not be feared. But it should motivate us like it did for Paul. See, Paul's explaining that we will give an account for how we've lived, what we've done in our lives, what we've done in our earthly bodies. This is not a judgment to decide if we're saved, because this judgment is only for those who are already saved. Remember in Romans 8, famous verse, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 19 in this chapter, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Jesus himself said, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So what judgment is Paul talking about? Instead, this judgment seat won't lead to punishment, but is actually about reward. It's a reward for believers. Remember in 1 Corinthians 3, we looked at before the summer, Paul was encouraging the church to consider how they build the church up, their works. And he compared works to different building materials like gold and silver and precious stones, or perhaps wood, hay, or straw. And he said that that work will be revealed or judged. And it says if anyone has built on the foundations, if their work survives, he will receive a reward. Or consider the parable of the, ta- uh, the talents that Jesus taught in, pa- in Matthew 25. If you don't know the story, Jesus uh, tells a story about a master who gave responsibility to different servants. And then when he comes back to settle accounts, he rewards those who have been faithful. And he says again a very well-known verse, well done, good and faithful servant. And he rewards them and gives them more responsibility. It might also be helpful to, to remember that this was a place where, um, in ancient times, where the athletes were rewarded as well for what they have achieved. A bit like the podium at the Olympic Games when they get their, their gold medals. However, I think thinking of it like the Olympics could perhaps be a flawed analogy because at the Olympic Games, everyone's competing against each other, aren't they? And there's only one gold medal for every event. See, God's kingdom's not like that. God is unlimited in his attributes and he's unlimited in his resources. 
His rewards are unlimited, and we mustn't think that this is a competitive thing. It says, Gruden says this, he has an infinite capacity to bring blessing on all of us. So don't think that we're competing against anyone else for the prize. And we really enjoyed watching the Olympics uh, this summer. Did anyone else watch much of it? A few of you? No, oh, not as many as I thought. We probably watched too much of it, to be honest. But there was a wonderful a moment in the, uh, the men's high jump. I don't know if anyone saw it. But, of course, all the competitors were trying to win the events, and they were being competitive. But at the same time, there was also some great camaraderie, and they were encouraging one another too. In the end, there were two jumpers who had done the same final jump and all the same previous jumps, and they couldn't be separated. And so in the end, uh, they were both declared victorious, and they were both given a gold medal. And I've never seen that before in the Olympic Games. And it was wonderful to see how excited they were for each other. And it wasn't just about themselves. It sounds like a few people saw that too. So in our Christian lives, we don't need to compete against each other. But like it says in Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and for good works. Not, neglect, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day, that's when Christ returns. See, this prospect of coming before Christ is, what Paul, is why Paul aims to please God in everything he does. He's not pleasing God to earn his salvation, but because of his salvation. It was further motivation to him, and hopefully it will be to us as well. So what about you? Are you pleasing God? Can I encourage you to, to remember God's grace for you? Remember, we're not saved by our works, but our works are in response for his love for us first. And can I encourage you to think, how can you encourage others? How can you stir up other people to please God? Let's stir one another up regularly. In verse 11, Paul shifts now from the previous section. And it shows now what his ministry actually looks like. If the previous bit I've just spoke on is the why behind his ministry, the motivation, then this second half is the what of his ministry, what he actually did, how he lived. His response in light of what God has promised for the future and Paul's desire to please him in everything he does. It says in verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And that is what Paul is all about, sharing the gospel with others sharing this message of reconciliation. He set his life to tell others about this glorious future that's available to all those who have been reconciled to God through what Christ has done on the cross. And he says in verse 14, it's the love of Christ that compels him. And that's not just him knowing God's love for him, for Paul, but actually knowing that God's unconditional love is for all people. It's that love that motivates him in all he does. That's why he worked tirelessly as an apostle, isn't it? It's why he planted so many churches and supported and wrote to them. The New Testament shows us his passion for the church to defend the gospel and to see many come to faith. So what is this message? This passage, as I said at the beginning, is a fantastic passage and it contains some wonderful summaries of the gospel. Verse 15, Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
Verse 18, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them. Verse 21, for our sake, he, that's God, made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And these words reflect something that the prophet Isaiah said hundreds of years before, and Anna stole my phone by, by reading it out earlier. That's all right. It says in Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We can be reconciled with God. If we deny him and go our own way, we're living in rebellion against him. But through the work of Christ, his death on the cross in our place, God forgives us our sins, gives us a fresh start. The old is forgotten, and we are made new. Amen? And this is Paul's story. If you don't know much about him, he encountered Jesus um, after Jesus rose from the dead on the road to Damascus. Up until then, Paul was a zealous Jew who was passionate about his religion and fiercely defended his religious beliefs. And he persecuted the early church. He made it his job to find Christians and to get them arrested and even oversaw their deaths. Why? Why did he do that? You can see in verse 16, he regarded Christ according to the flesh. He was convinced Jesus was just a man. I don't know about what conversations you've had with friends and family, but I've had conversations uh, perhaps with work colleagues, and it's not uncommon to hear people say things like, oh, you know, I like that bit of the Bible, I'm not sure a bit about that bit. I really like Jesus. He taught some really great things. He was a really wise man. He was a good man. And that's it. That's kind of where it stops sometimes for some people because they're regarding Jesus as just a man. But for Paul, which is true for so many of us here, isn't it? When we encountered the risen Christ as Son of God, our eyes have been opened. For Paul, his old life ceased in that moment when he encountered Jesus as he truly was. He entered a new life, living for Christ rather than against him. So what about you this morning? Do you, how do you regard Jesus? Just a man? If that's true, then can I challenge you? Will you receive him today as Lord and Savior? He died for you so that you could live. He took on your sin so that you could be forgiven. Christ can make you a new creation today in an instant. If you'd like to respond to that at all, I'd love to speak to you again afterwards, or perhaps you could speak to the person who brought you this morning. If you're watching online at home, please contact the office. We'd love to talk to you more. Okay, on to my last point, our ministry. We've been given this ministry of reconciliation too. It wasn't just for Paul. Paul said he is an ambassador for Christ, but we are too. We've been entrusted with this same message of reconciliation to share with other people. Uh, Phil Moore, in his book on Corinthians, which I highly recommend, he compares this passage to two paddles on the same boat. The two paddles of Christian maturity, he calls them. The first paddle is the understanding of the gospel. That's the deepening knowledge of the Bible and who God is and worshipping him. The second paddle is the paddle of evangelism, the ministry of reconciliation, sharing the good news of Christ with others. 
And if you've ever tried rowing a boat, you know how important it is to pull both oars at the same time, isn't it? Who's, who's been on the boats at Knockhatch? Not, oh, not many. More young people. Yeah, it's great fun. I mean, I've got to be honest, it's quite entertaining seeing friends and family on rowing boats, or should I say perhaps a bit worrying. I've had my fair share of uh, bumps and crashes too. But you know that you've got to pull both equally, otherwise you go off course, don't you? And you end up at worst going in circles. And that's a challenge for us here in this passage. Can I encourage us all? Let's pull on both these oars. Let's mature in Christ and our understanding of the gospel, but let's also mature in how we share the gospel too. And this is a challenge for me. If I'm honest, I think it's sometimes easier to pull the first pedal, and I'm really praying that God will give me boldness in the second. That may be different for you. But let's aim to grow in our understanding of the gospel, but let's also aim to grow in in us sharing the gospel. For the first paddle, let's be intentional about growing in God. Let's get stuck into church life. Come regularly on a Sunday morning. Try to attend life group or a discipleship group as often as you can. Make time to read your Bible. Make time to pray and worship. Read more about God. Ask other people to recommend good books. And I also like to just take this chance to promote what we have as a church in terms of our resources. There are loads of videos on our YouTube channel that explore different topics. There are blogs to read on the website, and there are also podcasts to listen to. They all explore different topics, and I really highly recommend them. They will help you grow in your walk with God. And let's encourage each other in this area too. We don't stand alone, do we? Let's build each other up. Let's push each other to grow in God. And the second door, in terms of evangelism, can I encourage you to pray into it. Pray that God would use you. Get to know people. That's, it's all about relationships, isn't it? Pray for your friends and family who don't yet know Jesus and pray for opportunities. Invite people to Alpha. As we said, it started last week and, and there's still places available. It's a great opportunity to invite people. Be yourself, but also let's be bold and step out. And again, let's encourage each other. We don't do this alone, do we? We're not on this journey on our, on our own, but we are a family. Let's encourage one another in this area. So like Paul, let's make it an, an aim to please God and allow the, the love of Christ to motivate us in this area. Tom Wright, in his book, which I really recommend as well, on Paul, on Corinthians, he sums this up really well. And I'll just read this quote. He says, the gospel is not just a mechanism for getting people saved. It is the announcement of a love that has changed the world. A love that therefore takes the people who find themselves loved like this and sends them off to live and work in a totally new way. The energy to get up and go as a Christian, as one who works for the gospel, therefore, comes not from a cold sense of duty, not a fear of being punished if you don't do your bit, but from the warm-hearted response of love to the love which has reached out, reached down, and reached you. That sums up really well. We mustn't ever feel a sense of duty in these areas, but actually let's let the love of God motivate us to serve him and to please him in all that we do. Can I invite the worship team back up, please? Just in closing... 
When Jesus came to raise Lazarus from the death, from, from the dead, he declared this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, although he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Our future hope of eternal life is only possible through faith in Jesus. He's the one who will bring God's kingdom fully here on earth when all believers will receive the resurrection bodies and all creation will be renewed. If you've placed your faith in Christ, you have already been changed. You are a new creation today. The old has passed and new has already come for you. See, Paul was gripped by this truth and this hope. It's no wonder he gave his life to please God and share this message with as many as he could. And so should we too. Amen? Amen. Can I invite you to stand? And I'd love to pray for us all. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for all the promises in your scripture. We thank you that because we know you, we can stand here and say, yes, we are a new creation in Christ. And it's not because of us. It's 100% because of you. We thank you that you have taken our sin on yourself and forgiven us. We thank you you've taken away our shame. We thank you that you have taken away the past and given us new life. We thank you that we know there is a day, because you've promised it, there is a day when you will return and make all things new. And we will see you as you are. We will be resurrected and live eternally with you in our new bodies. We thank you. What a hope that is for the future. I pray, God, you would, by your Holy Spirit, fill us and give us the passion to serve you, to please you in all that we do. Give us the motivation to share this good news with others as well. Father God, especially where we find it hard, give us the boldness to step out. Give us the courage to say something. Give us the words through your Spirit to help others come to know you. We thank you that you have changed our lives. And we just pray, God, that you would change many more. Father God, I pray for those this morning who don't yet know you. I pray, God, that you would touch them right now by your spirit and bring a revelation of who you are. Thank you, Lord. Amen.